0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post.
2: Hi, Jeff, Liz Winfrey,
1: Oprah. Hi there, how are you? Uh,
3: it's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Tuesday, February 25th. Today, a historically seasoned field of presidential candidates, an anti-poverty program recast as reparations and Weinstein's conviction,
2: As a voter, I feel like one of my concerns would be in voting for somebody who's 78 years old, how healthy are they? Who's the vice president in case anything should happen? This is one of, if not the most stressful job on the planet. We watch presidents age before our eyes. All presidents. Barack Obama, if you look at him eight years later— compared to the way he looked when he got into office, any of them. The stress is just unrelenting. And as a voter trying to choose someone who's 78, this is something I would think about. My name is Lenny Bernstein, and I'm a health and medicine reporter for The Post.
0: So we know that four Democratic candidates are either 70 or older. Do we have a clear sense, or or what is the sense of the medical history of these candidates? Some
2: have released reports that are quite vague, that don't tell us a whole heck of a lot going forward. Some have been quite detailed. Elizabeth Warren's report is very detailed and releases a lot of the medical tests that she had.
0: What about Sanders and Bloomberg?
2: Yeah, if you watch the Las Vegas debate, there was kind of this moment that was sort of hilarious uh, where two 78-year-old men turned to each other and, you know, started having that, that organ recital conversation. You know, how's your heart? Well, how's your heart? And, uh, you know, well, you've got stents and I've got stents. And I think the one area maybe
4: the Mayor Bloomberg and I share, you have two stents as well. All right. 25 years ago. <laughs> well, we both have two stents. It's a procedure that—
2: But it's But It's not funny. We as voters need to know what's going on with 78-year-old candidates as we vote uh, on the possibility that they're going to be the president of the United States for the next eight years. Um, You know, throw in Biden, throw in Warren, throw in Trump, and we need more information, not less. Senator Sanders' letter from the the congressional physician says that, uh, you know, he's passed a stress test and he's doing quite well.
4: We released reports from two leading Vermont cardiologists who described my situation. And by the way, who said Bernie Sanders is more than able to deal with the stress and the vigor of being president of the United States.
2: A lot of his medications have been discontinued post-heart attack, the ones he took immediately after the heart attack, have been discontinued. Bloomberg had his stent put in 20 years ago. It's fair to note in his situation, just getting a stent 20 years ago is not a huge risk factor. There's about a million stents put in in the United States every year. So we don't know much about those two, and I think voters are entitled to more. Do you get the impression that Senator Sanders— is
0: taking the very real concerns about his health and having had a heart attack on the campaign trail seriously in the sense that,
2: like, I feel like his campaign has has pushed back when people try to ask about his health. We don't have the information to know how big a heart attack he had. That's actually a measurable thing, and we don't know that. What he has said to reporters is, hey, look at me on the campaign trail. Look at the vigor that I've brought to the campaign trail after the heart attack. Try to keep up with me.
4: Follow me around the campaign trail, three, four, five events a day. See how you're doing compared to me. And that's what we have so
0: far, and that's what we have to use. How about the younger candidates? What do you know about their medical history?
2: Klobuchar has released four pages. Buttigieg hasn't released anything yet, but he has campaigned for transparency on the part of all the candidates.
1: Transparency matters, especially living through the Trump era. Now, Under President Obama, the standard was that the president would release full medical records, do a physical, and release the readout. I think that's the standard that we should hold ourselves to as well. Now, President Trump lowered that standard. He said just a letter from a doctor is enough, and a lot of folks on this stage uh, are now saying that's enough, but I am certainly prepared to get a physical, put out the results. I think everybody here should be willing to do the same.
0: What do you think is stopping candidates from releasing their records, especially since it seems like voters really do need the reassurance that they're physically up to the job and aren't going to have to
2: leave office early? What I think the candidates are thinking is, how little can I give and get away with it? Which has not always been the case. The tradition in past elections has been, we need to give more. And... That seems to have gone out the window with President Trump. There are candidates in the past who have refused. Clinton refused to give out certain information. But Trump really just sort of threw it out the window. And the others seem to be taking their cue from that and saying, this is what I can do if I want to.
0: Doesn't this undermine Democrats' sentiment of being up in arms about Trump not releasing his own records when now that we have a field of Democratic candidates – we're not getting much more than doctor's notes.
2: Yes. For those who have released minimal information, it certainly doesn't conform with the criticism that their own party has levied against President Trump. And you would think that that would be a consideration for them. People are making this incredibly momentous decision at a very difficult time in our country's history. They want the confidence that the person they voted for is going to be around to run this country and implement their policies for the next eight years, certainly for the next four. We don't want to put somebody in office And then turn around in a short period of time, however you choose to define that, and find that they're debilitated or worse than that, dead. That's what the voters want. They want that confidence that if they're going to make this tremendously important choice, that that person will be there.
1: John McCain really set the modern standard by releasing so many records and allowing reporters to actually view the actual medical records. Matt Viser is a political reporter covering 2020. Like so many things, President Trump has really changed how candidates have dealt with this. Three years ago, Trump released only a letter from his doctor attesting to, quote, "...astonishingly excellent health." His doctor later revealed that Trump himself had dictated the letter. And he has a well-known disdain for exercise and a diet that's heavy on red meat and sugar, fast food and soda. And last year made an unplanned visit to Walter Reed Medical Center, which the White House has largely declined to discuss. So President Trump himself has been pretty unforthcoming about his uh, actual health. But what's interesting is that Democratic candidates have released multiple years of tax returns in a counteraction to Trump's unwillingness on that front. But on medical records, they have largely chosen to follow Trump's lead. Most haven't released their actual reports, and they've simply provided these laudatory notes from their doctors, uh, just like Trump did three years ago. I think some of the candidates have just concluded that there is no upside, that the political environment right now has changed so much And that there's so many other things that Democrats are are worried about in an attempt to defeat Donald Trump that medical records is just not at the top of the list. Uh, Some of the younger candidates uh, are are trying to put political pressure on their rivals. Amy Klobuchar just released her records on Monday. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has said that he will release his. He, he of course, is the youngest presidential candidate. Amy Klobuchar is also among the the younger uh, at 59 so they're attempting to put more political pressure, um, but so far most of the candidates have not felt the need to offer any additional information. And there's some worry uh, um, that the, that the norms have just changed and and potentially changed forever.
0: Matt Viser is covering the 2020 presidential campaign for the Post, and Lenny Bernstein reports on health and medicine.
3: So this particular plan that we're looking at, Congressman Clyburn's ten twenty thirty plan, was not actually pitched as a model for reparations when he first came up with this 10 years ago. It's basically an anti-poverty program. It helps poor communities, whether you're Black or white, Native American, Hispanic. It gives counties that are persistently poor a shot at more federal funding. Tracy Jan writes about race and the economy for The Post, and she's working on
0: a series of stories about reparations. She wanted to look more closely at a plan that lots of Democrats running for president have touted as a form of reparations. She spoke with our host Martine Powers about it.
3: It wasn't until over the last year where presidential candidates started talking about this as a potential form of reparations. Uh, Representative Clyburn has a bill that Corey leads in the Senate. And as president... And
4: finally, we're going to pass Jim Clyburn's 10-20-30
3: anti-poverty initiative.
4: It'll go a long way to ending the legacy of systemic racism and breaking up...
3: He really began seeing his program through this lens. And in fact, he embraced this whole rebranding. We want to look closer at what this plan is all about and what about it could be considered reparations, as some Democratic candidates are now calling it.
5: So let's start from the beginning. Congressman James Clyburn, who is he? Like, what is
3: he about? So Congressman Clyburn is one of the most powerful African-American members of Congress. He is the House Majority Whip right now. He's held that position in the past. And he's one of the longest serving members of Congress. He's represented South Carolina for many, many years He grew up in the Jim Crow South. He's also a former history teacher, high school history teacher. So he's very well aware of all the systemic racism on which our country was founded. If you don't mind, I
0: will put this here.
3: I was down with um, the congressman recently um, in South Carolina. We had an hour-long drive from Columbia to Denmark, one of the rural communities that benefits from this plan. And he was explaining to me the history. And he said it first came up during... Obama's presidency, when Obama was first elected, he held a meeting with congressional leaders about how to get us out of this recession. And um, people went around saying who they were, what their thoughts were. And Congressman Clyburn told the group that he's one of the few Democrats that were not enamored with FDR. And he said this is why. Roosevelt's
6: New Deal was a raw deal for communities that I represent because when those Civilian Conservation Corps Projects Administration those programs came south they had a little tag hung on them, quite only and Roosevelt refused to do anything about that he played that game all of those jobs all they were segregated the white folks benefiting black folks
3: you got crumbs they didn't get the benefits that a lot of white communities got. And he didn't want whatever stimulus package they came up with for the Great Recession to go the same way.
5: And so that conversation helped propel this idea of 10-20-30.
3: Yeah, so he said during that meeting he came up with this plan. He said, we'll call it 10-20-30.
6: 30 was envisioned as a way... For underserved communities to not be left out of the recovery package.
3: 10% of any federal fund should go to communities where 20% of the population has been in poverty for at least 30 years or more. Wait,
5: okay, let me say that again. So it's 10% of federal money should go to communities where 20% of the population has been poor for 30 years or more. Correct. So that basically means we're going to set aside a certain amount of money from federal funding and federal investments to go specifically to communities where there is a sizable number of poor people who have
3: been poor for a long time. Exactly. Long, impoverished communities. And he was calculating this on a countywide level. So during the stimulus package, there were three funds that came from the Department of Agriculture that applied 10 20 30 formula to infuse money into long-impoverished communities. So it helped them get water systems, broadband connection, rural health access. So
5: Congressman Clyburn is basically making the argument that this standard that was applied to this limited set of funding that happened after the recession, that it should be used more widely for more federal investments, and that that itself could be a
3: form of reparations. And... It was expanded in 2017 when Paul Ryan was the House Speaker. He approached me and he came
6: up to me. He said, look, I saw this essay on the 10, 20, 30. He said, I really think that's a a great concept.
3: He was able to attract enough bipartisan support because he looked at the numbers and he showed them, look, two-thirds of these long impoverished communities are represented by Republicans. So these funds could benefit your constituents. So
5: there is a chance that there's enough political will right now to actually make something like
3: this more widespread. Clyburn himself would say he did not even consider this as reparations until he heard Bernie Sanders talk about it that way. Bernie Sanders famously in 2016 said he didn't believe in reparations. He thought it was too divisive of an issue. Now, as more and more, I think nearly all of the presidential candidates have said they would support studying reparations proposals, and when pressed on what that means, Bernie Sanders' answer is, hey, I love Jim Clyburn's bill, 10
4: Well, as I just indicated, there are massive disparities uh, that must be addressed. Uh, there is legislation that I like introduced uh, by Congressman Jim Clyburn. It's called the 10 30 legislation, which focuses federal resources in a very significant way on distressed communities, communities that have high levels of
6: if the election turns out uh, where I'd like for it to, uh, there's enough Democrats now on board. If, if we get the White House back, I think 10, 30 will be a big thing. And I really believe uh, it will be at the point where that can be uh, dealt with as a step toward reparations. And I think we we'll do ourselves well.
5: But it seems like there's a central tension here, that you have this sort of elaborate formula to find communities where people are poor and have been poor for a long time. But that's still different from just finding people who are descendants of slaves. And so are there people who are critical of this idea of using this as a
3: form of reparations? That's exactly right. There's two main issues with calling this reparations. Its critics would say, one, it doesn't just benefit black people. The Post did its own analysis of the counties that are eligible for this right now, and only 18% of the counties are majority black. 18% of the 460 counties are majority black. 58% are majority white. And so when you're talking about redress to descendants of people whose ancestors were enslaved, they were black. Another issue is that it's, it's, it's a very limited scope. So even if you were to call this reparations, it doesn't touch on all the impoverished black communities out there. There are a lot of urban pockets of poverty, including in Columbia, in Clyburn's own district, that currently aren't eligible for the funding because they're in wealthier counties. So there's lots of pockets of urban poverty whose poverty is disguised by the county's wealthier demographics.
5: So what does Congressman Clyburn say about the fact that this plan that he is really pushing and he's saying that it's going to be part of a form of reparation specifically for black people, that it doesn't actually help as many black people
3: as he kind of characterizes it? So Congressman Clyburn has been very vocal about not supporting individual cash reparations. And he he says, look, I'm never going to individualize reparations It has to be applied institutionally and this is a practical way to do it. This is something that you can get bipartisan support on, and just because you know, I I flat out asked him, even if that includes white Americans. It's not just about black people. Uh,
6: but it is also about black people. Mm And remember I didn't say there's all reparations, it's a form of reparations. Right.
5: And what do you think that means? Well, he would say, look, this is a
3: way that people from both parties can get on board to help impoverished black communities while also helping impoverished white communities and communities of color, other colors. But it does help impoverished black communities is what he would say.
5: But it feels like he's sort of bypassing the central point of reparations, at least in the way that we're talking about it now in this cultural moment, that it is about— black people who were descended from slaves, and that if he's saying that this is about all kinds of impoverished communities, that that means that it's not really the thing that people are asking for.
3: He would say this is one form of reparations. There are other ways that he would support as well, not cash reparations, but he's willing for the other ways to be studied.
5: I'm curious what his constituents think about this idea.
3: I think his problem with the reparations conversation is that he sees it as an esoteric academic debate that his constituents in Denmark in the rural parts of his district don't care about the academic debate of reparations happening in Washington they want services and in fact walking around Denmark we talked to several folks and they all they all said the same thing reparations doesn't apply to me we want better after-school programs for our kids. We want transportation to school. We want these systemic issues fixed. But his black constituents in Columbia, South Carolina, scoff at the idea that this could ever be considered reparations. One, because they don't get it, because they don't currently qualify. And two...
2: That money that Clyburn is talking, that he has, it will help us. Like I told you, that they say they considered reparations. I don't. I don't. It's so much more than 40 acres and a mule should be given, and they still can be given. They want us to believe that they can't give us these things. But yet, where do your taxes go?
3: They said this is selling the 40 acres and the mule promise short. That reparations for descendants of slaves should be more than this. And people who've been long advocating for reparations— academics, economists, other activists— they also scoff at the idea that this could be considered reparations. One, because it's not specific to black people. And two, it comes nowhere close to closing the racial wealth gap.
4: First of all, I support what Clyburn is doing as a matter of public policy. I think it's good public policy, and I think it's unifying public policy. However, it's not reparations.
3: So I spoke with Ron Daniels, who actually helped manage um, Jesse Jackson's 1988 presidential bid. And if you remember that far back, that, that made reparations a central plank of his campaign. But when I asked him what he thinks about Clyburn's plan, he's like, oh, it's great public policy. It's not reparations.
4: Reparations deals not only with enslavement and all of the consequences of enslavement. It also deals with all of the racial, racially exclusionary policies that deprived black people in particular, for example, the Homestead Act. I mean, black people were excluded deliberately and consciously. Redlining is an example of neighborhoods where black neighborhoods that were targeted. Um, The GI Bill. uh, This
5: debate over whether something like this plan could be considered a form of reparations, what do you think it says about where we're at as a country in talking about and even thinking about this idea.
3: Our country has a real problem talking about race and proper restitution to descendants of slaves. This shows how not far along we are in in confronting that issue. Um, The fact that for the first time you have major presidential candidates discussing reparations is a step but that they consider this plan as a potential form of reparation, some would find that not very heartening.
0: Tracy Jan writes about race and the economy for The Post. She spoke with our host, Martine Powers. And now, one more thing. This
2: is the new landscape for survivors of sexual assault in America, I believe. And this is a new day. It's a new day because Harvey Weinstein has finally been held accountable for crimes he committed.
0: On Monday, after three weeks of emotional testimony and days of deliberation, a jury found Harvey Weinstein guilty of sexually assaulting Jessica Mann and Mimi Halei.
7: In a lot of ways, Harvey Weinstein's conviction is not the end of the Me Too story, but it's the end of a chapter that I think a lot of people had been waiting to see how it would turn out. That's Monica Hesse, and I'm a columnist with The Style Section. The remarkable and noteworthy thing about Jessica Mann's and Mimi Halei's testimony is that their stories were really complicated. They didn't have DNA kits that they'd run out and acquired immediately after the assaults. These assaults had happened years ago. Uh, Both of them had continued to have some form of interaction with Harvey Weinstein, even following the assault. And all of these behaviors are within the realm of what we see of victims, but they are not what we typically will convict for in a courtroom. So what this case did was it, It showed jurors, and it showed the United States that actually it is often not the bad man in the bushes. It's often someone you know. It doesn't have to leave bruises. It doesn't have to be at gunpoint. District Attorney Cyrus Vance said rape is rape.
2: Rape is rape whether the survivor reports within an hour, within a year, or perhaps never. It's rape despite the complicated dynamics of power and consent. After an assault, it's rape, even if there is no physical evidence, and even if it happened a long time ago.
7: By having these women tell these very complicated but also representative stories of sexual assault, it allowed the listening public to, to kind of grapple with that and grapple with their own their own biases and their own expectations for how victims should behave and what perpetrators should look like and what what sexual assault should look like. And in a lot of ways that was the most revolutionary aspect of the trial, not only that the man on trial was this powerful famous man, but that the victims were the kinds of victims that we would have before said are are not perfect enough or not believable enough because their stories were very human and very complicated.
0: Monica Hesse is an opinion writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.